0: What's up everyone? I hope you are doing great. Welcome to episode 14 of the Ask Abhijit Show. Today we talk about geopolitics and great power competition. So let me first again define what geopolitics is. Geopolitics is a sport. It is a sport in which you make up the rules as you go along. It is a competition for the resources and control of the entire world. So that's what geopolitics is, and there are no rules in it. Whatever rules apply to you, are they depend on how powerful you are and how influential you are and how much, how much resources you can control. So that's what geopolitics is, and that's what we're going to dis, uh, discuss today. It's the competition with, between the various great powers of the world. And you have asked me wonderful questions, so let's get right into it. With question number one. So Gaurangi asks, which is the most important factor that makes a country a superpower? So the most important factor that makes a country a superpower is the ability to project hard power globally, on a global scale. So what's hard power? Hard power is military and economic power and diplomatic power. So diplomacy serves to augment your military and economic power. You cannot have an efficient uh, diplomacy without the backing of your hard power, which is the military and economic power. And economic power can be hard or soft depending on how you use it. So that is what makes makes a country a superpower. The ability to project hard power on a global scale at short notice. So you can get things done almost immediately when required. So as of today, by this definition, there's only one superpower, which is the United States. It's the only country that can project power globally at a moment's notice, at will. And China is the other country that aspires to be a superpower. It is at present not able to project hard power on a global scale, but it aspires to do so. It is building the infrastructure that is required to be able to do that. So that is the most important factor that makes a country a superpower. This is an excellent question to start off with. Gorangi again asks, what is the place of India in the power competition? And in what way does our nation do, need to develop to a great extent? So once again, let's take the uh, definition of power, real power national power. So national power is made up of a number of factors. It's called comprehensive national power. It uh, takes into account the kind of leadership you have, the kind of uh, governance structure you have, the military power at your disposal, the economic power at your disposal, the kind of alliances you have and all that. So all of that is taken together a measure of your comprehensive national power. Also the kind of natural resources you have and access to resources and all of that. So that makes up your comprehensive national power. Now in the power competition, what really matters is your ability to project hard power beyond your boundaries. So let's take a look at our map. The map is our best tool. It's, It's our best friend for understanding things. So this here is the map of the Indian uh, of India and its surrounding regions. So let's ask ourselves how far is is India able to project hard power economic and military power beyond its borders. Let's go west. Can India project power in Pakistan? Not really. Forget about Afghanistan, Iran it's too far. It's cut off from those places. What about Central Asia? India doesn't really have much influence there and no means of really projecting hard power. Tibet used to be in the Indo-sphere, now it is part of China, India has no influence there whatsoever. Nepal, Bhutan, well, so-so, Nepal and Bhutan are both, Nepal is very much leaning towards China and India has done nothing to stop that. Bhutan is again being encroached by China and India is not really able to help it out. When it comes to Myanmar, I think there's a lot of Chinese influence there. Bangladesh, well, Bangladesh and India's relations are not, well, not, not great, not bad, but not great either. What about other countries in Southeast Asia? India hardly has a presence. Sri Lanka, we know the situation with Sri Lanka, the fishermen that Sri Lanka keeps capturing or sometimes even shooting to death. And the Maldives, well, Maldives and India have had a fraught history in recent times. So as you can see, India doesn't really have the ability to project real power beyond its borders. At least on the land borders, India has the golden opportunity to, to basically make the Indian Ocean region, this entire vast region of ocean, its own. India can do it. India still has the opportunity. But to do that, you need to have a strong navy. You need to have a blue water navy. So much of the global shipping trade goes on through Indian waters so for example when you when uh, trade when ships are coming through the suez canal and through the gulf of aden they pass through india's lakshadweep islands okay over here in order to go eastwards so they pass through basically indian territory indian waters and even while going towards the strait of malacca over here they again pass through the andaman islands so india basically has the potential ability to control global shipping and global trade just by having an efficient and and good navy, you know, a proper blue water navy. So India keeps saying that uh, the Indian Ocean region is our strategic backyard, but slogans don't make it your strategic backyard. You need to take action. If India were to develop a navy, a proper navy, like 300 ships strong, which means at least 100 ships can be deployed at any given time, then the entire power equations of the Indian Ocean region and much of the world would change instantaneously and India would be taken seriously as a significant global power. As it stands today, India is basically at best a regional power, that too only because of its size, not because it's able to influence its neighbors. So that is the situation as of today. India is a potential superpower, I keep saying that. India can become a significant global player in just 10 years' time if it would basically develop its hard power. Hard power is economic strength and military strength. Economic strength is being developed to some extent. Military strength is being completely neglected as we speak right now. So these are all factors that go come into the picture, that all are put together in calculating a country's actual standing on the scale of power in the global level. So as of today, India doesn't really project power. I think Israel and Iran project power beyond their borders much more than India do. These tiny little nations are much more active on a global geopolitical scale, or at least a regional geopolitical scale beyond their borders than India ever does. So it's all a question about of attitude and ambition. Right now, India seems to lack it. But India has the potential to very quickly, very quickly become a genuine global player on the geopolitical arena. So that's where India stands as of today, but things can change if certain steps are taken. Okay, Adwait asks, what is Japan's role and significance in this power play as it has one of the most efficient human resource managements in the world? Yes, you are right in uh, Japan, is one of the most uh, optimized countries in the world. It has one of the most efficient systems of governance and business. And it was one of the best industries, industrial ecosystems in the world. It has uh, the best cutting edge research and, uh, and development. Japan is considered to be a shadow nuclear power, which means it can it doesn't have nuclear weapons, but it can have nuclear weapons next week if it wants to. And it can have delivery systems, too next week if it wants to. So that's the level of technological advancement Japan has. But as as things stand today, let's take a look at the, the map of Japan. So here we are. Let's go towards Japan. This is where Japan stands. So Japan occupies a very interesting and significant position in the geography of Asia. It essentially cuts off much of the Pacific from China. Because Japan goes all the way to these islands here, you know, Okinawa, etc. All the way to Taiwan. So that's one of the island chains that China is always so concerned about. So Japan occupies a very uh, strategically important location geographically. Japan is a pacifistic country. It has a small uh, small army, an armed force, so to say. They call it the defense forces. So uh, since the Second World War ended, Japan has been uh, basically militarily very inactive, very dormant. It does maintain a military. It does have a reasonably good Navy as well. But the entire focus of its armed forces is on defense. There is no offensive. uh, Well, it has never taken any offensive uh, attitude ever in the past 70 plus years. So Japan is a significant power but it doesn't project power beyond its borders. Even if you look at Japan's economic policies, economic can also be a a means of projecting power beyond your boundaries, beyond your borders. But if you look at the way Japan conducts itself economically and the way China conducts itself economically, you will see that China is intent on an ever ending expansion and, and projection of power using all means including economic means, which is one of the very important components in China's foreign policy. Whereas Japan does not indulge in the kind of economic practices and trade practices and mercantile practices that China does. Japan does not try to beggar its neighbors. It doesn't indulge in mercantilism. It doesn't uh, try to lay debt traps on its neighbors. It essentially indulges in fair trade practices, more or less. I can't say all of these practices would be good, but if you compare the two, it's, it's a difference between heaven and hell, black and white. So Japan does, it doesn't have the ambition to be a global geopolitical player. It is content to be a peaceful and uh, developed country and to live in peace and let others live in peace. How long that will last? Well, it all depends on China's uh, attitude. China has a big grudge against Japan and because of the events of the Second World War and China always uses these historical pretexts to bully other nations. So there is a ongoing land dispute, uh, between territorial dispute between China and Japan. And China has been bullying Japan in various ma- ways for a long time. So Japan is a significant economy. It is one of the most technologically advanced nations. But it is not a global power player on the geopolitical scene because of its pacifistic constitution. And because it is defense oriented. It has a very strong Navy FYI. Its Navy is more powerful than India's Navy, significantly more powerful than India's Navy. What is the measure of a Navy's strength? So most people answer the number of ships a Navy has. Uh -uh, That's a wrong answer. The strength of your Navy doesn't depend on how many ships you have. The strength of your Navy is directly proportional to how many missiles you can deploy at sea on a given day. And the Japanese Navy can de- deploy more than a thousand missiles on any given day. So at right right now, as we speak, it has at least a thousand missiles deployed at sea right this moment. Maybe more, maybe fifteen hundred or more. So that is the strength of the Japanese Navy. The strength, the power of a Navy is measured in the number of missiles, anti-ship and other missiles it can deploy at any given time. So Japan's uh, Navy is much more powerful than India's Navy. Its submarine strength is very good. It has very, very advanced submarines. So these are factors that, that China is wary of. But as I said, Japan's entire outlook is defensive in nature as of today. And that's why it is not a very big player on the geopolitical scene, even though it can become one if it chooses to, or if it is allowed to by its overlord, which we will come into, which we will get into uh, in, a, in a few moments. So that's where Japan stands. Uh, that's where Japan stands in the global power uh, power play position. Okay, pink line cabs asks, how does how does a small country like how has a small country like Israel made a dominance like this? But the whole Arab world has not been successful. That's a great question. We haven't really discussed Israel much until now, so let's talk about Israel. As always, we took, take a look at the map. Okay, uh, okay, let's go westwards from India. Let's go to the Middle East and to the Mediterranean region, the Eastern Mediterranean. So this here is Israel, the nation of Israel. And as you can see, every single neighboring country is its enemy. They all want Israel to be gone. They want Israel to disappear from the map. They want to erase this nation from the map, this tiny little desert nation. It's not a desert nation, but yeah. So they, they all want Israel to be erased from the map. And still here it is. Israel is still there. And the question is, the question is, how is a small country like Israel able to be so dominant, but the Arab world has not been so successful? So the reason Israel has succeeded and prospered and thrived is first of all, because of help from the West. A small country like this with so few resources cannot survive on its own unless it gets external help. Now, Israel is a very powerful and influential and politically active, to some extent, Jewish diaspora across the world, especially in the Western world, especially in the United States. So the United States has been a very strong ally of the Israelis over the over, ever since Israel was, was recreated in the 1940s, so the Americans have propped up Israel to a great deal. The British have also helped Israel. Nowadays, there are political problems between Israel and the US. Obama was very, very, uh, he was very antagonistic to Netanyahu and Israel in general. And the Democrats have usually have, in recent times, been not favorably inclined towards Israel, but historically, the United States has supported Israel to a great deal in terms of uh, financial support or or military support, transfer of certain uh, sale of certain military items, etc. And the other thing is that Israel is an extremely resourceful country. So uh the Israelis have always had this siege mentality, and you can't blame them for it because they are surrounded on all sides by enemies, they have fought numerous wars, etc. So they, basically the entire adult population of Israel is basically their professional soldiers. They all undergo proper military training. They all serve as soldiers and they are all ready to serve in the armed forces at a moment's notice. And Israel has a very powerful uh, security service, intelligence services, the so-called Mossad and the Shin Bet, etc., which e- enables Israel to project power essentially at a global scale to some extent. Uh, it can target uh, forces that are, that are antagonistic towards Israel anywhere in the world. So they have proven this. They have demonstrated this time and time again. Operation Entebbe and the the abduction of, uh, of Adolf Eichmann from Argentina in the 1960s or 70s, 60s most likely, etc. So they are able to project power globally and they they are technologically very advanced they have ensured that their their industries and, and technologies are very advanced they have this uh, startup culture they have this entrepreneurial culture you know they encourage all that a lot and they have ensured that they develop the best technology so these are the factors that have uh, enabled israel to uh, to stay uh, independent to stay uh, to ward of the enemies and let me also mention the most important factor Israel has nuclear weapons Israel is a nuclear it's an undeclared nuclear weapon state it has had nuclear weapons for many decades it has never officially uh, declared this but it is uh, it's an open secret so that is uh, one of the major factors that if Israel comes under mortal threat if it is uh, under threat of being overrun by the enemy it will use nuclear weapons as a last resort so these are the factors that have ensured that Israel not only uh, stays independent, stays uh, stays uh, secure, but also thrives. So that is the reason why Israel is doing well. And why are the Arabs not doing well? Because, well, the first thing is that the entire uh, Middle East, it's always under crisis, right? The Middle East crisis has been going on for decades. Well, it's the Western powers to some extent that have to ensure that this region is always under crisis so that they are able to project power there and interfere and uh, basically, uh, basically control the various actions of various governments by playing sides, etc. So that is one reason. And the Arab nations are essentially, basically these are artificially created nations. The borders that you see today are artificially drawn borders. Uh, this was all once under the Ottoman Empire and then under the British Empire. And uh, various countries were controlled by various uh, Western powers. And when they left the region, they drew these arbitrary boundaries. So these boundaries will change over time as boundaries naturally do. So things will eventually someday come to some sort of, of, of balance or equilibrium. So that is the reason why the all these Arabic countries and the basically the entire Islamic world is always divided and uh, in a state of turmoil. This is the legacy of colonialism and the legacy of their internal divides and all that. It's a very complicated story, but to a great extent, it's been fomented and kept going by the West to a great extent. And that is also the reason why Israel has been supported so much by the West, to keep this entire Middle East cauldron boiling. So that's how geopolitics is played, power projection. Okay, this is by Vandit Singh. The equation of Russia and Turkey has been a complex one to understand. They both stand on opposite sides in Syria, Libya, etc. They collaborate militarily and strategically, despite of Turkey being a NATO member. Explain this in context of the age-old rivalry of the Ottomans and the Russian Empire. Where does the US and India stand to gain, lose, with regards to this frenemy kind of relationship between the Turks and the Russians? So, like you said, the Turks and the Russians have... uh, an old rivalry during the Ottoman Empire. These were two rivals: the Russians, the Russian Empire versus the Ottoman Empire. There was a great uh, competition. It was kind of part of the great game Russia and the UK were playing, playing in in Central Asia. So it kind of spilled over to some extent between Turkey and uh, and uh, and uh, the between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. So if you look at the map, once again, if you will see Turkey. If you go north of Turkey, you reach. Uh, you have the to the east you have the caucasus region and in the north you have ukraine and uh, crimea etc so it's all basically uh, regions of russian dominance and russian territories so russia and turkey and the ottoman empire have been antagonists for a great deal of time in the 1920s i believe or 19, 1910s the russians even invaded parts of turkey and reached almost all the way to istanbul just a few miles from istanbul uh, and they were stopped by the other western forces etc so there's always been this fraught relationship yeah a uh, relationship of that contests uh, shared space so as of today like you said russia uh, sorry turkey is a nato ally it's an official nato ally and yet turkey the geopolitical ambitions of turkey are basically oversized they uh, under erdogan they aspire to revive Kind of, in a way, the Ottoman Empire. Turkey aspires to be a great power again. It wants to project power much beyond its, its borders. So it's trying to buy influence and acquire influence in various parts of the world, especially in its immediate neighborhood. Now, if you go to the west of Turkey, uh, in if you go to the west, you have Greece, Bulgaria, the Balkans, Romania, etc. So these are all Christian countries or used to be Christian mostly until very recently. So Turkey uh, can't uh, hope to have much influence there. But if you go east of Turkey, you will find all the basically the Islamic countries, the countries that were once under the Ottoman Empire. Even North Africa is all Islamic. So Turkey sees that as a great fertile ground for projecting power and expanding its influence. And that's Turkey's overall ambition to revive its great imperial days. And that essentially clashes with NATO's ambition of U.S. supremacy. NATO has one function only, to maintain and preserve and expand to some extent U.S. supremacy and hegemony across, across the region of Europe. So Turkey's ambitions clash with that. They are at cross purposes. So that's why Turkey is increasingly being alienated from NATO. They are buying Russian missile systems, the S-400 system, which NATO disapproves of. That's why they have refused to sell the F-35 fighter jet to the Turks. And the Turks are fine with that. So Turkey and Russia now seem to be uh, having some kind of rapprochement, some kind of they are growing closer together, even though they do clash at times, Turkey uh, in a couple of two, three years ago, shot down a Russian jet, killed a couple of Russian fi- Russian pilots, or at least one fighter uh, fighter pilot. And yet, wherever their interests align, they are cooperating, because Russia also seeks to maintain a sphere of influence which is beyond its borders. So Russia sees the Central Asian Republics, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, etc. It sees this region as part of its natural sphere of influence. And Turkey also sees these Turkic Central Asian neighbors, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, etc., as part of its natural sphere of influence. So there is a conflict there, but there is a scope for cooperation for now, temporarily also. Even Azerbaijan, so that is the situation right now. This is a temporary uh, temporary uh, convergence of interests. Turkey and Russia are likely to remain long-term rivals. But temporarily, they are cooperating wherever they can because Turkey is slowly drifting away from NATO and from the US. And the Russians basically... Their biggest threat is the U.S. because the U.S. is essentially surrounding Russia with uh, with various military bases and uh, pointing missiles at at Russia. So that's why as of now, right now, their interests converge to some extent. So they are cooperating. And that is the nature of geopolitics. There are no permanent enemies. There are no permanent allies. There are only temporary alliances and temporary adversaries. So right now, like you said, Russia and Turkey are frenemies. But this is not a long-term arrangement. This is a temporary, fleeting, transient arrangement. And we shall see how it goes. How does it affect the United States? Well, the United States is not happy with the way Turkey is drifting away from its orbit. And uh, what does India stand to gain? Well, India doesn't really have any power projection ambitions or plans or any presence in this region. So India doesn't really stand to gain much or lose much. Of course, if Turkey gets more powerful... And because Pakistan and Turkey are natural allies, it will be problematic for India. So to that extent, it could be problematic for India as well, because India and Turkey traditionally have been on opposite sides of the table, uh, never allies, never really uh, culturally, uh, culturally or any other way aligned in any manner. So basically, Turkey and India, you could say, are in a, have always been in a mild state of hostility or antagonism. Turkey has always supported Pakistan, especially of late. So, in that to that extent, it is not good for India. But all India needs to do is start exerting its own uh, strength and and, uh, influence abroad to change things. So, that's where things stand as of today vis a vis the relationship of Russia and Turkey. Okay, Arjun asks Do you think China will be the next Soviet Union? Means, will it collapse due to communism? I have heard many Chinese are unhappy with the current current government. You see, China is not a communist nation. China says it's a communist, Marxist, socialist nation, etc. But the truth is that it's an out-and-out capitalist nation. It's fully capitalistic in in nature. It has billionaires. Uh, A Chinese billionaire is born every other day and a Chinese billionaire dies of some reason every 15 or 20 days. That's what's happening in China right now so china is completely fully capitalistic right it's a fully it's it's trying to industrialize fully it doesn't really it, it socialism is just lip service marxism communism is just lip service it's basically uh, the rule of one party it's an imperial state so it's basically reverted to the traditional chinese form of governance which is the imperial system Xi Jinping may be called the president or whatever but he's actually the emperor and the CCP the Chinese Communist Party is the current ruling dynasty so it doesn't mean that Xi Jinping's daughter will become the next premier but somebody from the CCP in the future after Xi Jinping will succeed him as the president if everything goes according to plan if the if the CCP remains in power uh, for a long period of time so it is basically the country has reverted to the imperial system with certain changes so it is not by any means, a communist nation, will it collapse? Well, only time will tell. Uh, Typically, the Chinese dynasties collapse when they suffer a military defeat or they lose uh, face in some manner in the eyes of their subjects. So that's when widespread rebellion happens. And when 1.4 billion people rebel, there's nothing even uh, the CCP can do about it. So that will happen only if the Chinese Communist Party is, is seen to have lost its uh, divine mandate to rule the mandate of heaven so there's this concept in china called the mandate of heaven every emperor has the mandate of heaven as long as he or she as long as he essentially is able to control the country tightly no matter how many atrocities they commit to the people as long as they're able to control the country and and basically that is the only criterion for having the mandate of heaven But if they suffer a catastrophic military defeat somewhere, it means that they have lost the mandate of heaven. And that's when the dynasty inevitably crumbles and falls. And then there is a dynastic cycle. There's a period of upheaval and strife. And eventually, after some time, a new dynasty emerges. So as of today, the CCP is very secure. But if it does indulge in some military misadventure somewhere and it suffers a catastrophic defeat, that it may trigger off a chain of events that may cause its collapse. So it will not collapse because it is it is a communist regime. It is not a communist regime. It will not collapse because the people are unhappy with it. People have always been unhappy in China. There's never been a benevolent uh, imperial, imperial dynasty ever. So the, the only way the CCP will, will fall from power if it is if it it indulges in some military misadventure and suffers a catastrophic defeat. Even if it's a small defeat, if it is very visible, then it could be curtains. So that's how things go in China. Akash asks, what should be India's strategy to to tackle China and Pakistan individually? So so in the past, many Indian uh, leaders and Prime Ministers have said that it is India's it, it is in India's interest to have a strong and stable and prosperous Pakistan. Well, that is nonsense. A strong and stable and prosperous Pakistan will always be used by China as a proxy against India and as a destabilizing force on our Western boundary. What India needs... See, basically, Pakistan is Indian territory which was given up against without consulting the people. So I regard uh, Pakistan as, uh, as unfinished business. It is Indian territory, which will eventually in the long run, be reintegrated with the mother nation. As of now, Pakistan is an antagonistic power. It is not powerful in its own right. It is powerful because it is propped up by the Chinese. What India needs to do in the immediate future 5, 10, 20 years maximum is ensure that, China, uh, that Pakistan is balkanized. So we need to ensure that the various independence movements and freedom struggles within Pakistan, and there are many, many of these, and these are very justifiable because people have been oppressed brutally for decades in Pakistan. It's a horrible place. It's a terrible place to live in. And it's a one party rule. It's the the army that rules the country. The so-called prime minister is just a puppet. It's just a punching bag. So India needs to Encourage this and India needs to engineer peacefully, you know, peacefully uh, a peaceful and democratic balkanization of Pakistan. Sindh should become independent, Balochistan, uh, Punjab, uh, the northern areas can reintegrate with Afghanistan, and Kashmir should return to its home country, its homeland, etc. So that's what needs to happen. Gilgit, Baltistan, and POK should return where they belong, and once this happens, then we can deal with each of these independent regions independently, nicely, kindly, and we can help them out, and slowly over time we can reintegrate them. So this should be the immediate objective, next 10-20 years maximum. We can't wait longer than that. When it comes to China, India's objective should be to liberate Tibet from China. Now, this is not a short-term process, It, it it will not happen in the next 10 years. Right? China is too powerful right now. India is too weak. India has no military strength to, to speak of. We have an enormous army. The strength of your army doesn't belo- depend on the number of soldiers you have, my friends. Your soldiers may be the bravest soldiers in the world. It matters not at all. 1962 also we had the bravest soldiers in the world. What matters is the equipment, the infrastructure, the, and the technology, and the hardware. It all depends on the hardware, the technology, and, the kind of, and that's what matters, the, the quality of your heart, how brave you are doesn't matter anymore in warfare. So that's what India needs to enhance. India needs to invest in its armed forces. And one day, maybe we should give ourselves a 10, 20 year uh, time limit. We can basically engineer the freedom of Tibet from illegal and brutal Chinese occupation so if we can do that then india's northern northern border will again be peaceful it will again be a, a, a culture that is basically the same as our culture it will be people who are basically very, very friendly towards us we could if tibet was free we could even have open borders with them the way we have with nepal so all the border problems would go away if that would that were to happen so that should be the objective vis-a-vis china and pakistan with China, it's all about Tibet. With Pakistan, it's all about basically uh, helping these independence movements out because these are these are valid independence movements. That th- this is an artificial nation; it has no business existing, right? Pakistan has never existed before 1947. There was no nation of Pakistan. There was no concept of Pakistan. Even today, Pakistan is an artificial nation. It does, it doesn't have an identity and culture of its own. It's all borrowed. So this nation has no business existing. It is Indian territory. And we need to engineer peacefully in the best optimum way possible. It's slow but steady reintegration into India. And the starting process is to balkanize it peacefully. So that's what India needs to do vis-a-vis Pakistan and China. Okay, Sunny Negi asks... What do you think about the freedom struggle going on in Balochistan since 1948 after Pakistan annexed it? Should India back the Balochis? Yes, absolutely. India should back the Balochistan freedom movement. India should ensure that Balochistan gets freedom from the Pakistani occupation. Balochistan was a free nation. And the Pakistanis under Jinnah invaded and occupied it and annexed the nation. And the Indian government did not even uh, raise an eyebrow. So India needs to ensure that Balochistan gets freedom from this tyrannical, oppressive Pakistani occupation. They are essentially murdering the Balochis. They, they are marginalizing the Balochis and extracting all the resources from the land. It's a resource-rich region. It's also a wonderful maritime region. It is a nice port uh, called Gwadar, which basically was, a, was offered to India by the Sultan of Oman, and India refused it. So it went to Pakistan. So India needs to support the Balochistan freedom struggle. It is a just freedom struggle. India needs to ensure that Balochistan is liberated or they are able to liberate themselves from Pakistan. And India will run into opposition from Iran as well because part of Balochistan is currently in Iran. The Iranians have also occupied the western region of Balochistan. So if the eastern region were to become free, there would be the same sentiment in the Iranian region Occupied portion of Balochistan, which will be a story for another day. So it's complicated, but yes, India should support the aspirations, the democratic and freedom aspirations of the Balochi people. Okay, this is by Um uh, China has become a powerful country to, to reckon with. Yes, all that. Uh, So if one day India becomes an economic powerhouse like the US and China, is there a possibility of these Western countries plus the US treating India, treating us the same way they are treating China? Yes, this is a wonderful question. Brilliant question. So see, here's the thing about NATO and the US alliances. The objective of these alliances of NATO or any other alliance, the US has the Five Eyes Alliance or any other alliance. The objective is simple. It has a one point agenda to ensure that US, the United States remains the primary superpower, the only hegemonic force in the world. It is to ensure the continuity of US supremacy and hegemony. That's all, that's a one point agenda. It only serves the U.S. in the long run. Yes, it does throw some crumbs at its allies, etc. But even when it comes to the Five Eyes Alliance, the five uh, Anglo-Saxon nations, the United States, Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. So these are five nations with the same ethnic structure, the ethnic origin and the, uh, the geographical origin, the U.K. Even in this alliance, which is supposedly the closest alliance at all, Five Eyes, Even in this alliance, the US treats every other country as a junior partner. Uh, In the 1990s or 2000s, I believe the US sold some uh, fighter aircraft to the Australians and the Australians found that they could not use them to target uh, anything except what the US wanted them to. So the code inside the computers of these fighter planes would not allow Australians to target certain, uh, certain targets. They would need to take permission from the Americans to do that. So basically these fighter planes that were sold to the Australians were basically useless. So that's how they treat even their closest allies. And then the Australians had to re-engineer the entire computer code in order to make the planes work and be actual owners of the plane, (laughs) of these aircraft, these F-16s, I think, or F-18s, I'm not sure. One of those two. So the United States will not ever tolerate any country trying to rise to its level. And and the strange thing is that the rise of China is all thanks to the US. It's an enormous strategic blunder on the part of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. So they thought they could uh, prop China up against the USSR. In another episode, I had spoken about the fact that China and the USSR nearly went to war. The uh, The Soviets had actually considered very seriously nuking the Chinese. It was Kissinger, it was Nixon who intervened and threatened the Russians with a reprisal if they were to nuke China. And that's how the, they saved China. And then they had this uh, diplomacy with the Chinese and they agreed to support China's industrialization process. In the hope, they, they, they naively believed that if China were be, were to become stronger, more industrialized and more, more prosperous, then it would naturally become a democracy. How How naive and foolish that sounds today. But it is the Americans that have basically helped China rise to where it is today. China would never have risen to where it is today if it were not for American support throughout the decades since the 1970s, since the late 1960s and early 1970s. So today America has risen, has woken up to the fact that China is potentially an existential threat for them. And therefore they are doing everything they can to some extent, to some extent, to, to slow the Chinese rise down, if India were to try and rise to that level, it would invite similar, if not harsher, reactions from the United States and from the entire Western world, which is essentially, well, it is essentially run and managed by the United States. So yes, they would treat us, not the way they are treating China, they would treat us worse than to treat China because India is not a strong military power or strong economic power comparable to China. India's economy is much smaller than China's economy. India doesn't have the economic networks and all the alliances and all the dependencies of other countries the way China has. China has been systematically building this up since the 1980s. So even when China was a small, impoverished economy, it was still thinking like a global power. It was planning to be a global power step by step by step. So that is what India lacks. But if India were to aspire to do that, and if India were to take steps to do that, it would invite similar responses from the US and from the West. And you see this all the time. India is slowly uh, rising as an economy and uh, in some other ways. And you can see the hostile reaction of the Western media towards India. It's like hostile across the board. They try and focus on only the negatives. They try and portray India in an extremely negative manner. So you see that all the time anyway. So if India were to really start rising, then God forbid, you know, the the reactions will be much harsher. So that is, is the truth. Okay, Priya Samantha asks, explain Nagaland's insurgency. Why are most Nagas Christian? So this is about India, but it is very much related to geopolitics. And therefore let's, let's take a look at this. So my dear friends, do you know where Nagaland is? I have found that many Indians don't know anything about the Northeast of India. So, so just assuming that our education system has not provided you with this context, let me do that. So here we are back to India. Let's go into the Eastern region of India. This is the so-called Northeast of India. Over here, you have Bangladesh. Here you have Myanmar or Burma. This here is basically Chinese occupied territory. To the North, you have Tibet, which is Chinese occupied territory. So this is the Northeast of India. To the North, you have Arunachal Pradesh. Here you have Assam. And here we have Nagaland. So Nagaland is a state It's a region that has seen constant insurgency for decades. And like you said, it's a Christian state. It's a Christian insurgency. So let's go into the history of this region a little bit. So people in India, the majority think of Nagaland as related to the mythical Naga people of the Mahabharat. That is not so. The people of Nagaland are not related to the Naga people of the Mahabharat era. Not at all. This is a new term the British created. So here's the truth about the people of Nagaland. They are not one ethnicity. They are not one people. It's a diverse array of tribes who don't even speak each other's language, who don't have even worship the same gods. They don't even have the same culture. It's all it's a diverse, fragmented bunch of tribes who have nothing to do with each other. Some of them can't even speak each other's language. The only thing they have in common is a foreign religion. They were all Christianized during the British occupation of India and the British occupation of the Northeast. And they were further Christianized during Jawaharlal Nehru's regime, when he invited American missionaries to so-called civilize the people of of this region. So this term Nagas was given by the British to give these people a common unifying uh, ethnicity. It's a made-up ethnicity. They are not one people. The only thing that unites them today is this religion. So basically Nagaland, the ins- entire insurgency is propped up by foreign powers. There are photographs on the internet, you, will, you can search for them, of, of Naga terrorist and insurgent re- leaders on the Great Wall of China. Okay, so they, they have been very much uh, supported by the Chinese. They have been funded by the Chinese and they have been trained by the Chinese. They have been provided weaponry and equipment and arms and ammunition by the chinese across the border as you can see there is this border uh, the border with china is not far away so the chinese used to and still do ferry arms ammunition cash etc across northern burma into nagaland and chinese spies have been captured you know in nagaland and, and in northeast india so this is not one ethnicity it's an artificial ethnicity they have nothing in common, most of them, with each other. The only thing in common is Christianity. And the other force that is unifying Nagaland and fueling the insurgency is the West wired by means of various Christian organizations, right? So you will see these websites and Facebook groups run by various Naga or pseudo-Naga organizations that talk about Nagaland as being in a country in Southeast Asia that's occupied by India, right? That sort of thing. So this entire thing is basically to destabilize India. China wants India to be destabilized. The West also, to a great extent, wants India to be destabilized. So the West and China have converged in Nagaland to fuel this insurgency. It's been going on for decades. Even today, the Nagas have a de facto government of their own. They want to have their own flag. They have their own armed forces, which are not part of the Indian army. You know, and, and that's the sort of thing we have. So it's and they, they impose their own taxes on the people that don't, don't go into the Indian state, right? And many times in the past, during the tenure of Mr. Chidambaram as home minister, etc., the Nagas imposed land blockades on Manipur. So they prevented uh, goods from reaching Manipur, which caused incredible shortages. These blockades lasted for many, many months at a time. It's incredible inside India one state imposing economic blockade and economic sanctions on another state. And no one came to know about this. The media never reported this. So this is the kind of role that Nagaland is playing as of today. It is is being uh, all orchestrated from outside of India. And the Naga issue is the one problem that is uh, basically preventing India from reaching out to the uh, rest of Southeast Asia because India wants to build roads road connections between Manipur from Moray, etc. Where is Moray? Here is the town of Moray. So Moray is supposed to be the gateway to Southeast Asia for for India. There will be a road connecting Moray all the way to to Yangon and all the way down south to Singapore. That's the plan. And even a railway line which will connect uh, Manipur and uh, the other parts of Southeast Asia. So that's the plan. It's been there for decades And because of this Naga insurgency, it's not coming to fruition. So India needs to solve this Naga issue. India needs to cut off these external influences in Nagaland. We have to understand this Naga ethnicity does not even exist. It's a fake ethnicity. It's a number of tribes. If they were not Christianized, they were all polytheistic tribes, and they would all be considered to be Hindus. They would all consider themselves to be Hindus, the way the tribes of Arunachal, consider themselves to be hindus but today even arunachal is being christianized so these are all foreign influences these are not religious influences these are all tools of geopolitical coercion so that is the game that's being played in the northeast uh rapid uh, in, in influx of foreign culture even foreign migrants etc it's a very complicated thing but india needs to get its uh get its act act together, especially in Nagaland, this cannot be allowed to go on for too long. I think things are much better now compared to 10 years ago when Nagaland was imposing these blockades on Manipur. So I think it's being handled to some extent right now. Maybe it's a longer process. So let's wait and watch. But that is the truth about Nagaland. And it's a brief history of what's been going on there. Okay, Debbie asks, "Why is China picking up conflicts everywhere at the same time? What was the in- intent behind the Galvan intentions? It looked well thought out. What did they accomplish? China is China has basically uh, territorial disputes with almost all of its neighbors. If you look at the nation of China, it has it claims part parts of Mongolia. It has already absorbed." the so-called inner Mongolia, it wants more. It has territorial conflicts with with, uh, every other nation that you see over here. With Kyrgyzstan, with Kazakhstan, with Tajikistan, with Afghanistan, with everybody. Everybody. Even with with Myanmar, with Bhutan, with Nepal to some extent, and uh, with the Japanese. So basically, they are trying to keep every single neighbor off balance. Maybe they will someday hope be hoping to acquire the territory in the future. But the main intention right now is to keep every neighbor destabilized, to keep bullying each neighbor, to do this, this salami slicing. You take little slices of territory one at a time, a few meters here, a few meters there. You just keep slicing away. You keep doing pin pinpricks and you keep the neighbor off balance at all times. That is their strategy. Galwan was part of that. They were getting really aggressive and they got something they did not Basically, they did not uh, expect. They got a bloody nose. A whole bunch of the soldiers were killed, many more soldiers than Indians died. So that was a very big wake up call for them. And as you can see, after Galwa, nothing has happened, probably because they have accomplished a lot more with their virus than they could have accomplished with border disputes or wars. But that is the intention behind all of their border conflicts and all of those conflicts. And the reason they have kept the border with India undemarcated is so that they can keep on exerting pressure on India and keep on bullying India. So India will never have a settled northern boundary. And in the future, at a time of their choosing, they can try and do more incursions or try to nibble away at more territory. So that is the entire modus operandi of the the Chinese. And that's what India has to contend with. That's what every neighbor of China has to contend with. So Galwan was a disaster. A small scale disaster, they tried to cover it up, you know, so they did not accomplish what they intended to accomplish. They intended to keep pushing India back, back. but this time India fought back and punched them on the nose and gave them a very bloody nose. So it was something they did not expect at all. And now they are recalibrating their strategy. But overall, the strategy is still the same to keep biting away, to keep nibbling away and keep the neighbors off balance at all times. This is a good question. How did Japan become one of the best friends of the Western countries, especially the USA, even after the U.S. nuked them during World War II? This is a great question, right? How did that happen? Today, Japan is very much in the, in the sphere of the Western world. It's a, to some extent a westernized country. It has a very, very strong alliance with the U.S. So how did this happen? So... What really happened is that Japan came under US occupation, the United States defeated Japan, the Japanese surrendered after being nuked twice, the United States took over the whole country of Japan, the administration of Japan, all the military bases of Japan, they took over the whole country, they occupied the country, then the Japanese Constitution, the Meiji Constitution, was rewritten under the supervision of General Douglas MacArthur and a new constitution, post-war constitution was put in place, which was basically authored by the Americans. And that constitution is in force today. It has not been changed once since the time the Americans supervised it. Okay. And Japan is still under US occupation. Let me demonstrate that. So let's take a look at our trusty old map. Let's go towards Japan. So this here is Japan. The Americans have dozens of military bases in Japan. Let me show you one or two of these. Let me show you one of these. So this here is the island of Okinawa, the home of Okinawa Karate, Shorin Ryu Karate. So this island has a large number of US bases. Let's let's look into this. So if we go here, we have, let's take a look at the actual satellite image. So this is clearly an air, airport, an airstrip. It says MCAS Futenma. Let's see what it means. Marine Corps Air Station, US United States Armed Forces Base. So this is an American base on Japanese soil. Does a sovereign nation ever allow a permanent base of another country on its soil? Especially dozens of these? No. There are many more. But I've just shown you one and that should be enough for the purpose of this illustration. So my point is that the the country of Japan is under US occupation even today. Right? It is managed by the US. It is... Well, it it is said to have a strong alliance with the US, but it's actually under US occupation, de facto US occupation. Even Germany today, to some extent, is under de facto US occupation. So that is the true story, uh, which was the question. This is the question, yes. So after the Japanese were nuked by the U.S., the country was taken over by the U.S., it was occupied by the U.S., and it is still under U.S. occupation. And that's how it appears to have become the best friend of the Western countries. The Japanese have made the best of the situation. They have become an extremely well-developed country, the most technologically advanced nation in the world. They have a reasonably strong uh, armed forces. They They have a quite strong navy as well. But it's all under u.s supervision so that's the truth of the matter okay what will happen to countries what will happen to countries in the middle east when we completely switch over to sustainable sources of power well the only income source in the middle east is oil most people don't even work most people just pretend to work there are some jobs etc in saudi arabia but you don't really have to work there Everything is subsidized. Oil is basically free. But now that other sources of energy are becoming slowly, gradually mainstreamed, the Saudis and the other Middle Eastern countries are beginning to feel the pinch. So they are trying to make uh, future plans, contingency plans, about what happens when... uh, that free money uh, kind of dries up. Because the entire boom that you have seen in the Middle East, all these beautiful glittering cities and all, it's all because of the oil boom. It's all because of free money that came from oil that that basically pours out of the ground. So they have done nothing. They have done no work to actually earn all this. It's just been uh, the blessings of, of the gods. So when the world starts switching over more and more to other sources of fuel, to other sources of power. It's going to be crisis time for the Middle East. The region will go deeper into instability and it's going to be an interesting time. So, you know, this prosperity that they are enjoying will not last forever. And uh, it is now a matter of time before their their free free income dry starts drying up. So the next 20, 30 years will be very interesting for the, for the Middle East. It's going to be a very turbulent time in the Middle East. Interesting. Anusha asks, with India's foreign policy alignment towards the US, has it sacrificed India's erstwhile allies like Russia and Iran? Is this also one of the reasons for China's aggression towards India? Well, I would uh, beg to disagree. Uh, First of all, Iran was never an ally of India. Iran has always supported Pakistan, at least softly when it comes to Pakistan's conflicts with India. Uh, there was one of the wars, was it 65? Most likely 65, when the Pakistanis flew all of their fighter planes to Iran in order to safeguard them from Indian bombardment. So the Iranians allowed this. So they took the side of Pakistan in this uh, conflict, in this war with India. The Kolbush and Jada affair, The man, our man was kidnapped from Iran, from Iranian soil, and he was handed over to the Pakistanis. So Iran has never been an ally of India. It's always, well, we have had reasonably okay relationships with with them because we we wanted their oil. We needed their oil. And they were also in dire straits economically because of various sanctions. That's why they valued India as a, a regular buyer of oil. And that's why the relationship has been cordial and okayish, but it's never been an ally. As far as Russia co- is concerned, the USSR was basically India's patron state during the Cold War. India was a satellite state of the USSR. It was never an ally. It was a client and customer relationship. The USSR was the senior partner. Senior partner. The and in India was a junior partner. It was the. It, it held the begging ball to the Soviets and the Soviets gave us various crumbs and India's economy crawled along uh, the, the so-called, the much derided so-called offensive term, the Hindu g- g- rate of growth, which is actually the Nehruvian rate of growth. So it, it, so after the, the second, after the Cold War ended, after the USSR collapsed, the relationship between India and Russia changed drastically. Russia lost much of its geopolitical influence. It lost much of its hard power. It became economically almost destitute. So it was in no position to help India in w- any way whatsoever. And the relationship changed completely. That in ancient, uh, that old uh, what you call alliance no longer existed and it became a transactional relationship. So today it's no longer in any way an alliance. India and Russia still trust each other to some extent. There is a very cordial relationship between the two leaders and between the bureaucracies, the foreign affairs uh, ministries, etc. But these two nations are not allies by any stretch of the imagination. Now, why has India shifted towards the US? Because of, it's a natural shift. It's a geopolitical realignment, which is bound to happen. India came under increasingly uh, severe heat from the Chinese. The Chinese economy started growing and their military power, power also grew uh, correspondingly. And the US needed allies to, to basically counterbalance China. So India happens to be the natural ally or, or pseudo ally or quasi ally, because it is the only significant uh, power in Asia that can possibly balance China or counter China. It's the only power in Asia that, that can do it. So that's why the Indians and the Americans are currently, so to say, natural allies, but the Americans will never want India to rise beyond a certain level. So what is the reason for China's aggression towards India? China is aggressive towards everybody. China doesn't want any large countries in Asia. China wants to see India fragmented and broken up into lots of different small states. And that has been their policy for many decades. Uh, So so that is the reason why the Chinese are aggressive towards, towards India. They want to see a unipolar world. Only China should be the hegemon, a unipolar world, the only superpower. They want to see the US destroyed. They want to see every other country as... A client state of China as a vassal of China. So the best way to do it with India is to fragment India and that's why it is extremely aggressive towards India. So that explains the Chinese policy of aggression, constant aggression towards India. Okay, men asks, should India formally ally with the US by institutionalizing the Quad like NATO? Should India make its own alliance with smaller countries like Southeast Asian nations, Brazil? Basically, U.S. Can, can the US be trusted to help India against China unconditionally? Or is it just using us as a pawn against China? What is the American national interest to ensure that the United States remains the only superpower in the only global hegemon? And it will use various pieces on the chessboard to counterbalance China, And India is one of those chess pieces. It is not a pawn. It is a slightly larger piece, but it is a chess piece that the U.S. is uh, using to counterbalance China and try to destabilize possibly China. India is not doing anything to destabilize China, but the U.S. would like to use India in the future in, in that manner in some way. So can the U.S. be trusted to help India? The U.S. can be trusted to pursue its national interest. That's what the US can be trusted to do. The US cannot be trusted to help anybody else achieve their own national interest. The US will only pursue its own national interest. When their national interest converges with India's national interest, we will work together. When it does not, we will not work together. That's how it, that's how it works. Now, what India should do is what India should do whatever is best for its long term national interest in the immediate term and then long term and the medium term. So right now India is basically having a de facto quasi-alliance with the US and the so-called quad countries, Australia, Japan, India, and the US. It's not a formal alliance. It's a loose confederation of sorts. There is no actual military alliance at all, but it could in the future perhaps go in the direction depending on how China behaves. So it's a reactive arrangement. It's not a proactive arrangement. So there is nothing unconditional in geopolitics. The Americans are doing what suits them best. Right now our interests lie. What should India do in the long run? In the long run, India should emerge as a global power on its own right. I don't mean that India should be a hegemonic power, an oppressive power, an expansionist power, but India should be secure in its own strength and India should have a significant region of power projection and various kinds of influence that exceeds its current international borders it should be in a position to rearrange the geopolitical arrangements outside beyond its borders so that's what defines a great power so that's what india should aspire to india has everything it needs to become a great power in in as much as short as a decade if it wants to if it can get if it can get its internal problems right if it can basically uh, get that right you know So that's what India needs to do. That's what I hope India does. It will be good for the world. India is not an expansionist power. India is a benevolent power, has always been a benevolent power. So a strong and powerful India would be good for the entire world overall. So that's what India should aspire to do, but not in the next 500 years, in the next next 10 to 20 years. So that's what I hope happens. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of live questions and... Then we will wrap up for the day. I apologize to to those of you who have been asking questions. Uh, I will try and take a few. But as you understand, I hope I can't take all questions. Right? So, So let me take a couple of questions. All right. Let me see. Give me a minute, please. Uh, okay, this is by by No Name. Hello, No Name. Is the world suffering from the outcomes of the Great Game earlier and even today? Only characters of nations changed as the UK became the US. Similarly, Soviets raised China to divert and distribute enemy efforts. Like you say, I agree with you to some extent. The uh, Great Game never ended. The great game is very much afoot even today. The UK, the, the British Empire, morphed into the American Empire. The Soviets propped up China. The Americans propped up China. Now, the China is the new, new aspiring superpower. The Russians, too, have a very powerful uh, military. They are one of the hardest powers in the world. They can project power globally if they wish to. So, there, there is the situation today. So, the world is suffering from the outcome of history, right? Everything is something that's left over from history. It's not just the outcome of the great game from a hundred years ago. It's the outcome of everything that ever happened before. It's the outcome of something that happened thousand years ago. It's the outcome of things that happened 2000 years ago as well. So that's why you have to understand history to see how the present day world came into being, how it was shaped, what are the forces, and powers that shape the world. Why did they do that? What are the agendas? And what are the agendas at play even today? So, yes, that's the way we need to, uh, the, that's the way we need to, uh, to approach the study and uh, analysis of geopolitics. Okay, Rohan Choudhury asks, do you think there would be a satellite war during WW3 by launching missiles as an example? Well, that, technology, it does exist now, if there is a hot war, a third world war, like you say, or even a regional conflict, you could see satellites being targeted. So the United States has the ability to uh, target satellites. The Chinese have this ability. The Russians have this ability. And the Indians, we, the Indians, have the ability to destroy satellites using anti-satellite weapons. So let's say in the future, India and China enter into a conflict. There's a war, Limited war or any war of any kind. Maybe there's a blockade in the Malacca Strait. Maybe there's a naval war after China conquers Taiwan. Then their their Navy is free to come into the Indian Ocean. So maybe there's a conflict there. So what they would want to do is they would want to disable India's naval satellites, India's reconnaissance satellites. India would also want to disable Chinese military satellites. So there could be this uh, space war in which satellites are taken out one, one after the other. So the, te- the technology and the capabilities do exist. It's going to cause a disaster in orbit, an enormous cloud of debris, and we will basically have to re- remain an earthbound species if that happens, because it will cause, it will create millions of debris in orbit around the Earth. And we won't be able to launch any rocket without it crashing into one of these debris and being destroyed. So that is something I hope doesn't happen, but the potential is very much there. So good question, sir. One last question for today. Okay, this is the last question for today. Please stop asking questions. My friends, we'll, we'll, get, we'll take more in the next episode. So this question says, what will happen if the chicken's neck is cut from India completely? Will India be able to persuade China to give back its territory? The only way to persuade somebody in geopolitics is by using leverage. Leverage comes in the form of power, power projection. So The first thing is India should never allow the chicken neck that connects. Okay, what's the chicken neck? Let me just uh, elaborate what that is in case we don't know. The chicken neck, let me bring back the satellite image. So this here, the Siliguri Corridor is called the Chicken Neck. It's a very small piece of territory, 50 kilometers wide at its largest extent that connects northeast India to the mainland of India. And I don't understand why we agreed to this sort of geography. So this is a very disadvantageous geography. It allows China the opportunity if a war were to eventuate to to try and cut this part of uh, India's geography off so that it can cut the Northeast of India off from mainland India. And then if that that were to happen, then they could even take over the Northeast of India. So this is a very disadvantageous piece of geography. Uh, What India can do in such an eventuality is take over Bangladesh rapidly and use that to access the rest of the country, Northeast of India. So that is one thing we can do from a military strategic perspective, But the main thing is we should never allow this to happen. If China does it, then how can India persuade China to give it back? Only by military force. There is no other way India can persuade China to give it back in case the eventuality happens where China is able to capture that territory. So it's all about military strength. It's all about force. It's all about power, hard power, military power. And that is what lies at the very heart of geopolitics. A nation... Is respected on the geopolitical arena only to the extent to to which it has hard power. Soft power is a mirage. It's a chimera. It's an illusion. India needs to stop hankering after soft power. The only power that matters is hard power, my friends. And that's what I would like you to take at the end of this discussion. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful, very interesting discussion. And we will continue this next week. But from from me, from, for tonight, it is goodbye. So I will see you in the next episode. Bye.